can head back to be with our team in Transformation Station this morning. And I would like to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus. So that'll be the third book in the Bible that, uh, that you have. So please uh, open your copy of God's eternal word to the book of Leviticus chapter 10. Uh, and if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, it'd be page 88 of those Bibles. So um, this morning when I uh, got to church, you know, some of you who uh, serve on our serve teams, you know, kind of I try to get here and uh, maybe, maybe speak to everyone for a minute, help out where needed. And then usually I try to kind of tuck myself away and, uh, and get in the zone a little bit with the sermon, you know, make sure that I, I, uh, I know the text well and, and know the, the, the material well. Uh, so just to kind of tune my heart uh, to the truth and to pray. And uh, so this morning uh, I was back, back in, in the back room kind of doing my thing, even had my earphones in, you know, this morning, which is a little abnormal, but I was uh, I had them with me, and so I'm just kind of back there. And then all of a sudden, this little uh, this little guy, uh, about three years old, walks in. Uh, his name's Owen Chastine. Uh, he comes in. If you know Owen, Pastor John's youngest son, he comes in with his floppy hair, big smile on his face, dimple showing, teeth. You know, I can kind of like count his teeth. He's just so happy. So I don't I don't know what he's what he's about to tell me, but I'm thinking, you know what? I better check on my man Owen, see what's going on. So, so I, you know, pull out one earbud. What's up, man? I want to take Parker on date. <laughs> I said, hold, hold let me take out this other earbud real quick. <laughs> What'd you say? I want to take a Parker on date. So I said, man, look, it's March Madness, okay? The, the Mercer Bears just beat Duke. I feel like I could pick you up and kind of squeeze you into like a basketball and come out here and like dunk you through one of these hoops just to knock a little sense into you, Owen. I, I was thinking about it. I didn't do that, but I was thinking about it. And then, you know, the, the, the sweetest news, okay, almost, almost akin to... Uh, just the, 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 the truth of, of God, how it just brings music to our hearts and ears. Uh, just before the, 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 the time to come on out, uh, I hear Emmett yelling down the, the back curtain there that Parker hates boys and, you know, telling Owen to just kind of calm down a little bit, you know, that he doesn't have much of a shot at this point. And, you know, obviously that, that lifted my fatherly heart to kind of this new place where I'm, you know, feeling really good about the, the, the day again and the situation. And so, and so I, lo- I love to hear that, right? My, my five-year-old girl, she ain't got no time, no business for, for little Owen, okay? Uh, her, the access to her heart is, is shut off and closed, okay? And I hope it stays that way for about another 25 years years, right? Feel me, feel me dads out there. Uh, so there is, there's this kind of, uh, you know, jealousy as a father, probably a special way even than mothers experience for their daughters uh, to be protected, to be loved, to, to be guarded against little three-year-olds that may try to weasel their way into their life, right? Uh, so so there, there's, a small, there's a small picture there of, of how that we should see in the heart of God the jealousy the jealousy that he has for his own glory, the jealousy that he has for his own holiness. And so as we we look into the book of Leviticus, what we're going to see is that there was only one way, God's way, that we could get access into his presence, into his heart, and it was on his own terms. So this morning as we open the book of Leviticus, I want us to think about the true and greater access this morning. We've 
been in the Old Testament, the first two books of the Bible, for the past seven weeks. And just by way of review, okay, uh, we started the first week looking at the true and greater Adam, how Jesus is the true image of God, who when he comes into our life is now remaking us into his image, whereas we were fallen before, separated from God because of our sin, and that image of God that is in us is now distorted and broken until Christ comes in and renews it and, and recreates it in his own image. So we looked at Jesus being the true and greater Adam, Jesus being the true and greater covenant, how God is covenanted with his people in faithfulness to be their God, and, and, and he's promised and committed himself to upholding all of his promises, and he does this through the work of his son. We looked at Jesus as the true and greater Joseph. Do you remember that, that providential story of Joseph rising to power in Egypt, and yet forgiving his brothers who had sold him in to slavery. And of course, this pictures forth how Jesus has treated us through his work on the cross. Then we looked at Jesus as the true and better king through the prophecies about Judah's line. We looked at the true and greater redemption a few weeks ago, God's true and greater provision in Christ that's pictured forth in the manna in the wilderness, how God provided that. And Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And then last week, we saw how Jesus is our, our true and greater presence. He's the presence of God. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And now God has sent his spirit to dwell in those who believe in Jesus and now have complete, uh, a complete relationship restored with God. So this is where we've been. And we just have a few weeks left after uh, we get into Leviticus this, this morning. But, but I, I love that we're going to jump into this oft-neglected book in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, okay? In the book of Leviticus, uh, this, this morning we're going to see it has one mega theme, all right? One major theme over all of the other themes, and that is the holiness of God. The theme verse is stated twice in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 11, verse 45, and in chapter 19, verse 2, where God simply says to the people, be holy for I am holy. This is his command for the people. So the question becomes, in light of the holiness of God, how can we, as a sinful people, have a relationship, come into the presence of a holy God? But what we're going to find is that God made a way. He made provisions for ancient Israel, and he has done the same for us. And so the encouragement for us this morning is for us to come boldly to God through our true priest and greater sacrifice, who is Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you two truths this morning. They're right here in the main point, that Jesus is our true and greater priest and that Jesus is our true and greater sacrifice. And then at the end, we're going to have some encouragements on how to respond in light of how Jesus has given us a way to have access, complete access to God himself. So first, let's consider Jesus as our true and greater priest who mediates for us. We're going to start in Leviticus chapter 10. But before we read verse 1, you need to understand that the first nine chapters, okay, again, this book is all about the holiness of God. So God is detailing out 
how that the, the, the priests who represented the people were to relate to God. And so the first nine chapters are all about these offerings that the priests throughout the year on different days and times and, and throughout the, the, the rhythms of their, of their calendar year were to present themselves to God and present offerings to God on behalf of the people. So what we find then at the end of chapter 9 is that Aaron has given this solemn sacrifice before God. In verse 22, it says that then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from, the, from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out before the Lord. And consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Okay, so what's happening here is that Aaron and the, 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 the priest, they have been very specific, very detailed on offering up these offerings exactly as God has prescribed through these first nine chapters. In all of the care, all of the detail that they were uh, paying attention to was, again, a reminder and a display of the holiness of God. But then that brings us to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, there is a stark contrast with two of Aaron's sons named Nadab and Abihu. Check out what verse 1 says of chapter 10. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So what's going on here in Leviticus chapter 10? Well, you have Aaron's, two, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who are in the, in, in, in the priesthood with, with Aaron, their father. And they get an idea of their, of their own design they think that they're going to, to, to come into the holy place and offer some kind of sacrifice before God, but the, the text is very clear that they offer a sacrifice that is not authorized by God. It's unauthorized fire. It could be translated strange fire. And so the key statement is that this is not what God had commanded. God just spent nine chapters telling Aaron exactly how he wanted things to be done to communicate to the people how holy he is and, and how they can worship him rightly. But Nadab and Abihu take matters into their own hands. And what's going on here is they're, they're treating the holiness of God with levity, with, with a lightness as if they can come to God on, on however they want to come to him and not honor the prescriptions that he has set forth. So they are presumptuous. They're entering God's presence in an unacceptable way. They are disregarding what, what Moses then says to Aaron. Because I mean, we're shocked, right? 
We're thinking, man, like wasn't, I mean, we don't know exactly what was going on here. We don't know the, 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 the well, we do know the depth of the sin, right, because of, because of the result of the sin, but, but we don't know exactly what all was motivating Nadab and Abihu. So we're kind of shocked that God would strike them down and, and kill them in this moment when they offer this strange fire before the Lord. And yet, verse 3 tells us the significance of what's going on here, because what, is, what does Moses say to Aaron? He says, among those who are near me, among those who are representing me before the people, I will be sanctified. In other words, I will be set apart as holy. I am, I am such a holy God that to disregard my commands, to kind of wink at my commands and say, you know what, that's a really good idea, but God, but I think I'm going to go and do my own thing, go my own way. God says, you have no idea how holy I am. And then Moses goes on and he says, before all the people, I will be glorified. So God says, the worship that I am due is the kind of worship that must be pure, it must be true, it must be right, it must be that which will honor and glorify me. And so again, I, I know, I mean, if you're, if you're like me, you're reading this text and you're thinking, man, God, isn't this kind of harsh? Like, what, what, like how, could this, how could this happen? Like, couldn't, couldn't you kind of give them a break here? Like, give them another opportunity, another chance? But I know we respond with this kind of amazement in part because we do not understand, number one, how holy God is, and number two, how sinful we are. So, so we have to understand the holiness of God and, and the sinfulness of man and to also remind ourselves that this, this what happens in this instant, in this moment, is, is a picture of what is going to happen to us all in light of our sin. Okay, so, so Nadab and, and Abihu experienced the consequences of their sin like that. But listen, Sin always carries grave consequences. Sin always leads to death. Your sin may not have cost you death yet physically, but I can guarantee you that your, death, your sin has cost you death spiritually. And so if God chose to make an example out of these two priests that treated his holiness and his glory with with. with, with, with a very light concern, then who am I to stand in judgment against God? God is to be treated as holy. We are to recognize our sinfulness before him. We are to follow his commands as he designs. And so then this episode launches us into one of the most significant chapters in the Bible, Leviticus chapter 16. And these two chapters are tied together. Look there with me, if you will. In verse 1 of chapter 16, it says this, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. Okay, so there is a, there is a connection between what's going on in chapter 10 and what's about to, to take place in chapter 16. Moses says this to, to, the Lord speaks this to Moses after Nadab and Abihu had died. And now what we're about to get is what is known as the Day of Atonement. 
The Jews called this day Yom Kippur. It is, uh, that, that word means the covering over, the covering up. Rabbis simply called this day the day. This is how significant. Well, they just refer to it as the day. This is, as some uh, scholars have called it, the Good Friday of the Old Testament. On Good Friday, when we celebrate the crucifixion of Christ and his sacrifice for us, this is foreshadowing all that Jesus did for us in the Old Testament, Leviticus 16. So if there are many chapters in the Bible that we really want to know, really want to grasp, this is certainly one of those chapters. So in the first six verses, again, we see how the priests who represent God before the people, who mediate their intermediaries for, before uh, God for the people, it shows us how they are to act. So verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come up at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from, from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. So, so very quickly, what's happening here is that the high priest, okay, so Aaron is Moses' brother, and he is the high priest. There's only one high priest of the people, and he is representing not only himself and his house, as verse 6 tells us, but if we were to read verse 17, we would see that he is representing the whole nation of Israel before God. Because as we remember, the tabernacle, you have the outer court, the holy place, and then the holy of holies, the most holy place. And it was on this one day, the day of atonement, when the one person, the, the great high priest, would come in through the outer court, through the holy place, and in once a year to the holy of holies. And so we, we see all of the extensive ritual cleansings that he goes through, all of, the, all of the, the changing of the garments to be clean before God. I mean, this is all of these practices, all of these steps are to communicate again how holy God is and how significant and serious it is to make atonement for himself, his house, and the people of Israel. So you can guarantee that the nation was on edge when Aaron the high priest would go in before the presence of God because God is so glorious and he is so holy that they had just seen before, man, if you go in in a way that is not acceptable to God, then the outcome may not be so great. So Aaron goes in to make an offering, a sacrifice, atonement, so that the, the sin of the people could be pardoned. The payment must be paid. But here's the good news for us, okay? Jesus is the true and greater priest. He is the one mediator between God and man. So Jesus is, is our access to God. He is our great high priest, as the book of Hebrews says over and over and over again. 
So Hebrews 7, 26, I love, says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, listen to this, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus was the perfect one. He had never, I mean, let this kind of sink into our minds a little bit. We were just singing the song, and I knew it was coming in the sermon. I can't, get, I can't get this out of my mind, that Jesus is holy, right? We just sing this, Jesus, you are holy. I mean, have you ever been into a different culture before? I experienced this when we went to India. Scott and I went to India a few weeks ago. And man, there was, there was a little bit of a shock to our system when we saw all the different things happening in India, all of the different customs that were taking place. Can you imagine when Jesus, the holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, son of God, comes into our world and experiences life in our fallen world? And as we're going to see, What shock must he have experienced when he bears the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders so that we might go free? Jesus is the great high priest. He's holy. He's unstained. He's perfect. And he can then perfectly represent us before God. So Hebrews 9 verses 11 and 12 go on to say, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. Okay, this is an allusion to the tabernacle. We just studied it last week. It says, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. So it's here in Hebrews 9 that we begin to see that Jesus is not only our priest who can enter into the holy places, but what he's carrying is not the blood of goats and, and calves, it's, but, but it's the blood that he shed for us on the cross, his perfect shed blood. So Jesus is not only the true and greater priest, but Jesus is also the true and greater sacrifice who paid for our sin. That's the, that's the second point. Jesus is our true and greater sacrifice who paid the price for our sin. Let's look then now in verses seven through 10 of Leviticus 16. It says this, then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tit of the meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness. Okay, so let's just pause here and just again, as a heads up, okay, I can't emphasize this enough. This is very, very holy ground. If we don't understand what's happening here, what, what the Day of Atonement is picturing forth, then honestly, we, we're, we're not going to understand Christianity. I mean, it's, it's that significant, okay? So you have two goats that, that are presented before Aaron, and they cast lots to see which one, just to make a long story short, which, which goat is going to be killed as a sacrifice, and which goat will be for Azazel, which is alluding to the escape. This goat would be the scapegoat. 
And as we're going to see, this scapegoat is going to carry the, the sin, representative, symbolic. The sins of the people will be laid on this scapegoat and will be taken out of the camp into the wilderness to be removed from the people. And so the beautiful truth that we see in the cross, the glories of Christ and the glories of the cross is that Jesus fulfills both of these goats. He is at once the sacrifice and the scapegoat. So first, Jesus is our sacrifice. The lamb was killed. One lamb was killed as a sacrifice before the people. And again, we might ask, well, well, God, like why such a bloody scene? You know, like the God of the Old Testament, he's so, he's so violent and he's so bloody. Like what's all that about? Well, just turn over to Leviticus 17, verse 11. I think it'll help you understand. It says this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Are you following here? So, so, so what Leviticus is telling us is that there had to be sacrifices and there had to be bloodshed because why? Because blood represented life when it's in the body, but it represented death when it was shed as a sacrifice. And we just talked about Romans 3.23, the way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in chapter 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. We, we saw that in Genesis 1-3. through The wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. They were made to live with God forever, but their sin brought death. Physical and eternal death. Sin always brings death. So therefore, there always has to be a payment for our sin. And so God then puts these sacrifices in place so that as these goats and bulls and lambs were sacrificed before him, it was representative of how sin always carries the price of death which made then a way for the people to relate to God. And so as we look then toward the cross of Christ, we see that this is then how people can not only enter into a relationship with God through sacrifice, but they can also, we also maintain our fellowship with God through the sacrifice that God has provided for us. Theologians call this penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, there is a penalty that sin demands and there is a substitute that satisfies that penalty in order for our sin to be dealt with. So just, just listen up, okay? Listen up if you're, if you're here this morning and you're kind of trying to understand what Jesus and the cross is all about. It is about God satisfying the penalty that our sin deserves. So if you've never embraced Christ, if you never looked to Christ and placed your faith in him, then you must do that in order for your sin to be removed and wiped clean before God. I hope, if that's you this morning, that you will look to Christ and see that Jesus alone is your sacrifice and that Jesus alone is your way to God. We see this in the sacrifice, how that, that God has made a way for us. The work of Christ is foreshadowed in that sacrifice, but it's also foreshadowed in the work of the scapegoat. Look at verse 20. 
through 22. It says this, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So we have the goat that is sacrificed. Now we have the live goat. And then verse 21, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So once again, there is substitution that is represented. One goat was sacrificed as the penalty for sin. The other goat has the sins of the people confessed on its head, and then it is led out in the wilderness to be removed. This is the scapegoat. It, takes the, it represents the sin being taken outside of the camp into the wilderness and the removal of the penalty of the sin of the people. So it's in, it's, it's in the scapegoat that we see that not only have the, the penalty and the consequences of our sin been dealt with in Christ, but also that Christ removes the guilt that we carry because of our sin. I mean, do you ever feel guilty before God? I mean, once, once you grasp that God is God and God is perfect and God is holy and God is not like us, and you sense that you have not lived according to his commands, you have not worshiped him or glorified him, then you know you have a problem on your hands. And, and that's why we feel guilty. That's why our conscience troubles us. And we know that we've blown it before God. And so what we need is the work of the scapegoat who takes our sin and removes it so that we no longer have to carry the weight and the burden and the guilt of our sin. This is surely why David in Psalm 103, verse 12, I mean, he had to have this imagery in his mind when he said, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, okay? The devil wants to accuse, condemn, okay? And this is true even for the believer in Christ. Even though my sin has been forgiven and my guilt has been removed, Satan wants to come in and he wants to accuse. Tanner, you didn't live up. Tanner, you blew it. You weren't a very good husband this week. Oh, Tanner, what, what, what were you doing over there on, you know, that day when you were interacting with that person? I mean, what's going on? And so there's just an accusation after accusation after accusation and the guilt can mount up. But Jesus comes in and he wipes the guilt away. He removes the guilt. He is our scapegoat. And atonement is made through the work of Christ. So I hope you see why the day of atonement was so significant. That Jesus performs the work of both the goat who was sacrificed and the goat who became the scapegoat to represent the sins of the people being taken away. So what are then the results of this work of Christ? Well, in the crucifixion narrative, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 37 and 38, give us a really good glimpse on the, the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. What does it say? 
And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So Jesus gives up his spirit. And when he does, when he cries, it is finished. It is said that the curtain in the temple, okay, the, 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 the veil into the most holy place, the holy of holies, that stands 70 feet tall and as thick as a man's hand, it is ripped in two. And what God is screaming to the world in this moment is that you now have access to me. There's nothing keeping you out of my presence. There's nothing keeping you from coming into relationship with me. It's through the blood of Christ, his sacrifice for us, that now we can come to God and say, God, I'm not perfect. I've blown it. I haven't worshiped you, but I need you in my life. I need you to forgive me of my sin, and I trust in the sacrifice that Jesus made for me so that now I can have life in you. I mean, these mysteries of the cross are so amazing that we must think about them often. We must consider how amazing they are for us. Anselm said, the great uh, church father, said this of the cross, the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. The debt was so great that while we alone should pay the price for our sin, we could never do that because we're not perfect. We're not that perfect sacrifice. So only God himself became man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross so that we, through faith in him, might experience the benefits of the payment that he offered on our behalf. So here's what I want to do. I want to read just scripture. And if you're not yet in Christ, if you're not confident that one day when you stand before God, that he will allow you access into his presence, then I hope that you will hear these words and they will compel you to come and be one with God through the work of Christ, to have access and relationship with God because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. That's what I did when I was a pretty little boy. I understand that God made me, that I had sinned against him and that I needed Jesus to be my substitute and to accept his work for me. And many of you have made that decision. And so if you have made that decision to follow Christ, then I hope this just encourages your faith and causes you to love Christ more and more and more. Let these words wash over you this morning. Isaiah 53, verses four through six. Surely he has borne. Look at the work of Christ in these verses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. 
He shall prolong his days. Jesus is alive, by the way. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered. The sinless son of God was numbered with thieves, the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. John the Baptist, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul writes, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews chapter 9, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal sin, because he's already dealt with sin on the cross, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Just the next chapter, Peter can't stop. For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so what does Paul say to this? In summary of the work of Christ on the cross, and you are in one or two of these camps this morning, and I hope that you will find yourself in the latter. He says, for, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This message, it seems so amazing, so crazy, so like, almost as if it were folly. And this is how the world responds to Jesus. God becomes a man, lives a sinless life, dies on the cross for our sin. It can't be. And yet for those of us who have received the truth and know it to be true, it is not the foolishness of God, but it is the wisdom and the power of God that is able to save us and bring us into a relationship with God. And what that means then is that we have abundant life now, joy, peace, life. But we also have the hope of eternal life with God forever. It's a really good deal. Jesus takes your sin on the cross and he gives you his righteousness. So if you have not trusted in Christ, when God looks at you and he sees your sin, then what you need to say to God is that, God, I realize that I have not measured up and I need your grace and I'm going to look to Christ and his work on my behalf so that I can have life and salvation. Don't wait. Don't wait to respond to God. This gift is too good and amazing to pass up. So then what we see 
is that the purpose of the atonement is to bring us in to the presence of God, to have complete access to the God who made the world and everything in it, and then that should cause us to worship him. So here's the exhortation. Here's the encouragement. In light of Jesus being our true and greater priest and our true and greater sacrifice, here is what we should do. We should respond with wonder, gratitude, and devotion to Christ and him crucified. Respond with wonder, gratitude, and devotion to Christ and him crucified. And this, I think, is so good as we move into the Easter season and we meditate on the Holy Week and the sacrifice of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Man, why don't we get a head start? This is something, again, we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day of how great Christ is and what he has done for us. So number one, marvel at the foot of the cross. When we consider all the cross means, the long promises of God fulfilled, the mysteries revealed in Christ, the benefits that come to sinful people through the work of Christ, we should simply be amazed. God, how could you love us so much? How could you do this for me? I never deserved this. I never deserved to have a relationship with you, but now you have made a way. The sinless son of God crucified in my place. The cost was very great because it cost Christ his life for us. So we should marvel at the cost. We should marvel at his love. Greater love has no one than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus told his disciples before he was crucified. We should marvel at his grace that's available to all who would receive Jesus. So let's marvel, let's wonder. And, and, and let, me just, let me just say this, okay? And this might hurt a little bit, but, but that's good. We need that. If, if you are not marveling, if you are not amazed by the gospel, if, 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 if when we sing these songs on Sunday, there's not something kind of like lifted in your heart of, of, of praise and gratitude and amazement to God, if you're not kind of through the week ever reading your Bible or listening to praise songs and, and you never are affected or get moved, maybe shed a few tears of joy, then you might ask yourselves, do I really understand the holiness of God, my sinfulness, and how great the work of Christ has been? We constantly need to be reminded of these things so that we will wonder in amazement at what Jesus has done for us. So number one, marvel at the foot of the cross. Number two, give thanks at the foot of the cross. So when, when we really understand what Jesus has done, it's going to move us to praise him. We must respond with deep gratitude. And then finally, to wrap us up, we should live then at the foot of the cross. So here's the good news, okay? The cross isn't just for the entrance to the Christian life. The cross is for every day of the Christian life. We have as much need of Jesus' sacrifice on day 250 or 2,500 as we did day one. So when Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. You remember this, right? We just hit this in the fall. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we have been crucified with him. He lives in us. We don't live for ourselves, but we live for God and his glory. 
So how we need to hear this. Again, having just gone through Galatians, we heard again and again, salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Legalistic righteousness will never earn you favor with God. You're never gonna be accepted by God according to your own works. We heard it again and again and again. And yet, it's not only that the gospel for freedom that Christ has set you free, stand firm and don't be yoked again by, uh, held back by a yoke of slavery, So we're free from legalism on the one hand, but we're also free from licentiousness, right? Because Paul goes on and he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So in other words, just because grace has saved you doesn't mean that you can live however you want to live. But now we live for God with our lives to honor him. So the theme verse of Leviticus is what Peter's going to write in the first chapter of his first letter, where he's reminding the people, be holy because God is holy. God wants a holy people. He wants us in all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our work lives, all of our friendships. He wants us to display the holiness that Christ came and displayed to us. And so we need, we have constant need of the light of God's truth to wash over us, to to cleanse us. We need to not only open the word daily, but we need to share the word with one another daily, encourage one another with the word daily that we might remember that God is calling us to live in a distinct way that will point to how awesome he is. And so we saw this last week. We, We saw how in Ephesians it says that God is building the church up as individual living stones into this holy temple in the Lord that we are by the Spirit a temple together for God. And we ask the question, as living stones, is your your living stone cracked and dirty and and somewhat in need of, of repair? Or is your life, the life that you are living before God, does it reflect someone that is clean before God? that is whole before God, that is thriving. And you're probably saying, Tanner, I'm somewhere in between. And so my encouragement is to constantly come back to the foot of the cross, to confess your sin before God, to know that Jesus dealt with all. I mean, the song that we sang, full atonement. Full atonement, can it be? Do you understand what that's saying? It means that every one of our sins... If we are in Christ, and just think about your sin for a moment. I mean, some things that we would never want repeated to another soul. All of those sins Christ paid for on the cross. So if you are in Christ, you then have reason to marvel and give gratitude and live in light of what he has done. And if you're not yet in Christ, then you have every reason to say, God, I can't believe that you would make a way for me to have a relationship with you. And so this week it hit me. I was hanging out with Jim Costello, and uh, Margaret made a really nice dinner for us. We were hanging out, and, and so Jim and I, after dinner, you know, the girls were like reading books with Marsha and Margaret, and I was just catching up with Jim. What's up, man? How's it going? How's your community group? This and that. And God's doing a great work in Jim's life, really giving him this work of renewal and, and uh, just causing him to be devoted to the Lord. I was really encouraged, and it dawned on me, and Jim's talking about how that he's following after Christ and how that he's experiencing the blessings of, of Christ in his life. And so this little phrase hit me, tweeted it out if you saw it on Twitter, probably not. I have like 10 followers. Um, anyway, 
But this is, this is what hit me. When we fulfill all God expects from us, we will experience all God desires for us. You got that? When we fulfill all that God expects from us, we will experience all God desires for us. And God desires the very best for us. He wants us to have peace. He wants us to have life. He wants us to experience love like we cannot imagine. He wants us to experience joy. So when Jesus in John 15 is saying, abide in me and I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit for God to his glory. He goes on and he says this in verse 11. He says, I have spoken these things that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be full. So we come to Christ. We have access to God through the true and greater priest and true and greater sacrifice. And then that work then compels us to live our life for God. And when we do, we experience all the joy that Jesus died to bring to us that we might live our lives for him. Let's pray together. Father, as we have opportunity to respond to you now, Lord, I pray that there would already be in our hearts a sense of amazement that we, though we are sinful and separated from you, that that you have made a way for us to have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, would you fill us with wonder? Would you fill us with amazement? Would you fill us with gratitude? And Lord, would you fill us with a deep and abiding desire to live our lives, this one life that we have, not for ourselves, not for the glory of man, but for you and for your glory. And Lord, would you teach us, would you help us to discover and experience that there is so much joy to be had, so much delight when we make you the treasure of our lives. So Lord, would you do that in us? as we partake of the Lord's table this morning and as we go from this place to be your church wherever we may be found. Pray in Jesus' name.